when fundraising is fundamentally relational, it's not transactional and it's enjoyable. And so when somebody says to me, I hate fundraising, I think, okay, you're just doing it wrong. You're, you're, there's some very simple things you could do differently. And fundraising would go from being your least favorite thing to being your favorite thing. Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Brad Leyland, CEO of the Focus Group in St. Augustine, Florida, to discuss his new book, Turning Donors into Partners. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of the Association for Biblical Higher Education, And we are honored to have as our guest this week, Brad Leyland. Brad is the CEO of the Focus Group, which is a consulting group that focuses on building the kingdom of God by helping organizations have the funds, resources to advance their missions. He's no stranger to us, serving several ABHE institutions. And I learned ABHE several years ago before I was president. Brad helped ABHE with uh, one of our capital campaigns. And his wife, Wendy, also served on the ABHE board. And I've invited Brad to talk about the subject of fundraising, to try to demystify and take the awkward out of fundraising. So welcome, Brad, and thank you for joining us. Oh, it's so fun to be here. Thanks for having me on your show and on this podcast today. Great. So to kick off our conversation, we have some questions that we want to work through. But before we do that, so the audience can get to know you a little bit more, tell us about, as you reflect back, share with us one experience that God used in your life, kind of a defining moment for you in either your personal or professional life. Well, I mean, the most defining moment was meeting Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And for me, there was a moment in high school that my best friend said to me, Brad, you do have a relationship with Christ, don't you? And I said, well, of course, my mother's an Episcopalian, my grandfather's an Episcopalian, so therefore I'm an Episcopalian. And he said, well, you know, you don't get your faith by your parents, like DNA, you get it by accepting Christ and confessing your sins. And I told him that he was full of it. And then I went to my youth pastor and said, imagine this setup, Philip. I went to my youth pastor and said, is it true that I have to confess my sins and accept Jesus into my life and commit my life to him? And if I do, I can begin a personal relationship with Christ. Is that true? And he says, you know, you can imagine like, you're a youth minister and you're trained for kids to say those kind of things to you and you're waiting your whole life. And I'm that easy kid that went to my youth pastor and said that. And he's, and he said, well, yes, Brad, that is true. Would you like to accept him? And I'm like, well, yes. 
And so a defining moment would be when my best friend, Steve, confronted me about Jesus, right? And I remember where we were, We and I remember me being offended by the question, and then it, I obviously know where it led me. And so there's nothing else that could change my life in a greater way than that. And I'm so grateful that he broke the sound barrier. And so often we just assume everybody knows everything, but he didn't. He asked the great question. And so... Right. And it was a divine appointment that God set up, and he answered that divine appointment to ask you the question, and you responded. And it set up your trajectory, really, for everything that you're doing here, obviously in your personal life, your spiritual life, but then also your professional life as well. Yeah, it is interesting because that same friend said to me at a different day, we were on our way to a Bible study, and the same friend said to me, you know, when I when I grow up, I think I'm going to go on Young Life staff and work with high school kids. And I remember like, I was driving and I remember looking at him and seeing, what, why in the world would you do that? You said you wanted to be a banker and go into business and who in the world would go into full-time ministry and you don't get paid anything and you have to raise your own support. And, you know, fast forward, he went and became a banker and I went on the Young Life staff and I raised my own support. And so God has a sense of humor for sure. And obviously my career I learned how to raise money through my work being on Young Life staff. And what really was defining for me was that I realized that if I wanted to reach like a group of kids at one high school, then I should do the work. Like, but if I really wanted to reach our city for Christ, I want to reach our community, then I needed to raise money to empower others. And so I I learned that. And then Young Life saw that I had learned that. And then Young Life kept promoting me until I was the chief development officer. And really the largest project I got to be a part of was we launched a a $200 million campaign to double the number of kids Young Life was reaching around the world. And so I got to be the chief development officer while that was going on and be a part of that. Obviously, I didn't do it all. God does it. And a lot of people contribute to raise that kind of money. But those conversations back in high school. It's funny how they <laughs> traject- They shape a trajectory forward. Suddenly you're raising $200 million for that organization you told your friend not to go on staff with. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, as So the focus group and a link to your website are in the uh, session description for those listeners who want to learn a little bit more about the focus group. You can click on that there. I've had the pleasure of going to the annual meeting that you have there in St. Augustine. And the thing I really like about those conferences is you share a lot of the stories of how you've come alongside organizations and seen success from a fundraising perspective. Out of all of the stories that you have been a part of, share with us the the one success story that was most meaningful to you. I can't pick one. I never can pick one. But probably one of the most successful stories I ever was a part of was a family made a significant gift to one of our clients to the tune of about $40 million. And that, okay, well, why was that? I could stop and say, that's it. We raised $40 million, right? But that's actually not the thing that was most meaningful. So I think that fundraising, when it's done well, transforms the lives of the people that you're serving, but it transforms the lives of the donor as well. And so when this family gave this $40 million gift, obviously there was an appropriate thank you event to celebrate the gift. And as a part of that thank you event, we very intentionally obviously invited their whole family. And then as a part of it, we had um, a really intentional story of, of one of the 
participants in the organization share their testimony of how Jesus had changed their life through the organization and how this gift was going to allow so many others to have their lives transformed through the power of the gospel, right? And so to help create that thank you event where that gospel proclamation was proclaimed, and then the person from that family that got up to speak was one of the children of this billionaire couple. And that particular child was a, you know, he was about my age at the time. I was younger. I was in my 40s. And he showed up with a broken arm. He had a girlfriend who was about 20 with him. And um, his broken arm was because he was kite surfing off 100 miles off the surf, off of the shore of California. He was just a billionaire's child living large with all that money. And so he, his job was to get up and say, you're welcome. We were supposed to say thank you. And his family was supposed to say, you're welcome. But we very intentionally scheduled the, the person whose life had been transformed to, to say thank you to the family and give their testimony right before this donor's son said, you're welcome. And she did an incredible proclamation of basically saying the truth about everything we know about Jesus. And she said it, and then he got up, and instead of him saying, well, you're welcome, he said, everything she has, I need. I've spent my life trying to fill it with all the wrong things, and I'm not here saying you're welcome. I'm saying thank you because I need what she has. And so when I think about that moment, it's not the 40 million. It's the 40 million gave us the opportunity to proclaim Christ and, and transform lives, right? And so nothing else that he had filled his life with will fill his life like Jesus. And so I'm sorry for preaching, but, but I think I can preach to this audience. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it opens up opportunities that in the broader sense of fundraising, we get laser focused on getting the resources and in order to accomplish the organization's need. And we often forget about the donor side of it, which you often talk about the, and we're going to get to it here in a little bit of just building those relationships with people and the opportunities you have to really minister to, to people who you would think because of the resources, they have everything in life. But in reality, a lot of times they're some of the loneliest people that are out there. Yeah. I mean, like, so like when I think about my great, that is my great, like, that's my greatest. I love fundraising because it transforms all of us. We as fundraisers feel out of control and scared, right? And we have to rely on God for strength. Me too. Even though I do this professionally, it's still crazy and scary, right? And then the people that their lives are, are, are ABHE schools are like incredible and really walking, like swimming upstream in a culture and it's hard. And, but yet the children and the teenagers and the college students that are being impacted, unbelievable impact through your schools. So like their lives are being transformed. Our lives are being transformed, but the donor's life is being transformed too. And if, when all those things are happening, we're doing what I believe is healthy fundraising. When a donor gives a large gift and it's like an ATM machine transaction, that, you know, like we're just trying to get as much money from them as possible to accomplish something over here. That doesn't feel good. And it doesn't feel, it's not what I believe God's called us to. God's called us to relationship and relationship with our donors and obviously our school. So, and honestly, the last point I'd make is that like the two in reality, like the people we serve and the donor who gives the money, like they're not that different. Like they're, we're all just together in this world, right? It's just one person has more resources than the other. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it about fundraising? So you've been in the business, you're helping organizations do the fundraising. 
And I've seen it myself in organizations where you have high caliber senior leaders, you have a president CEO of an organization that you know, can wax eloquently from the stage and builds relationships and advancing the mission and they have a strategic plan. They're just effective leaders. But then when it comes to the issue of fundraising, it suddenly becomes awkward. What is it that contributes to that? Well, the the biggest contributor to that is that they're doing it wrong and they're approaching fundraising the way they see other people approach fundraising. They see another organization have a golf tournament or a gala and they go, well, we need one of those, right? I tell a story in my book about like a lot of people fundraise. There's this skit I used to do with kids and you would take three people, you'd send two people out of the room and you'd leave one person in the room and you'd say to them, when the next person comes in the room, we want you to pretend to be washing an elephant, right? Like pretend to wash an elephant. And so then the second person comes back in the room and you say to the second person, do what you see them doing. We're not telling you what they're doing, but you're going to have to do it. And third person is going to have to try to guess it, right? And so the second person is watching this person wash the elephant. They don't know what they're doing. And then they mimic it for the third person. And by this point, everybody's just laughing, but it's, it doesn't look like anything like washing an elephant, right? Like I've done that, but I haven't. And so that's what fundraising is. We're just mimicking a lot of people and we have no strategy behind it. And when fundraising is fundamentally relational, it, it's not transactional and it's enjoyable. And so when people hate it, when somebody says to me, I hate fundraising, I think, okay, you're just doing it wrong. You're, you're, there's some very simple things you could do differently. And fundraising would go from being your least favorite thing to being your favorite thing. And, and that's what I think God's called me to do is help people do it the right way and then fully fund their work so that lives can be transformed. Like, you know, unlock the finances. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org. Or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that's got to be pretty rewarding for you to see that progression as you're working with organizations and, and individuals to kind of coach them along in that process. And that's a great example to kind of see that we're, we are doing it wrong, right? We're, we're not going to the source. We're not learning. We're not sharpening that edge of fundraising. We're effective at all the other things that we do within the organization. But when it comes to that, uh, mimicking what others are doing is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do. Yeah, because you got a unique gift that you can do and you got to do it your way. But it is, yeah, it doesn't get us yeah. where we need to go. Yeah. So you mentioned your book and you have a book coming out, Turning Donors Into Partners. And at the conference last year, you distributed those and really enjoyed reading that. One of the themes that you have in the book is demystifying the donor, treating them as normal people. You even said on the continuum from the donor to the the organization or the person representing the organization, there's really isn't a huge gap. One is just resourced differently than the other. But how should we as leaders 
because we have to live in this tension, right? It is about building the relationship, but there is that tension of I'm building this relationship so that ultimately I I can get something out of that relationship, resources. So how do you live in that tension of building a genuine relationship with that person while also recognizing the fact that relationship is a means to getting resource? Yeah, it's a really awkward tension, isn't it? Right? Like if, and if you really, if you, do, if you were to believe that the only, that there's a, it's a one way, one way would say, I got to manipulate the person to get the largest gift possible out of them. Like if that was the case, you're talking to the wrong consultant, right? There are consultants. Like I went to a seminar once and a person told me that to get a person to give the biggest gift, you need to get them to cry three times. And after they've cried the third time, then you ask them for a gift. I said, well, how do you get them to cry three times? They say, well, you test stories until you find stories that bring people to tears. And then you just get really good at telling those stories. And then they'll give you a huge gift because you made them cry, right? Well, I, I, I know, like, that's not it. That's wrong. Like, what the truth is, is that you need resources, like you as an organization, ABHE, ABHE schools, like, like, we're helping lots of ABHE schools with projects. One of the larger ones that we're helping is Lancaster Bible College. Unbelievable school. They're raising millions of dollars that, you know, they're biggest problem they have is Peter's their former president and he's like one down from Jesus. And so like anybody that tries to raise money after Peter is going to have a hard time. Right. So like, that's their biggest problem they have is whoever's asking is not Peter, but that's just a shout out to Peter. Cause I like him so much. But the point is, is that like, they need resources and Castro Bible college needs his resources and their donors, their major donors need to have a place to invest their resources in a way that'll bring glory to God and will have eternal impacts. So if a donor is given the choice of buying a new Lamborghini or investing in a new wing or investing in a scholarship that will, or underwriting a faculty position, right? Like which of those two will have any value in a hundred years, right? that the Lamborghini will be gone. It'll be rusted away and not working and useless. But the money that they gave to Lancaster Bible College, it'll be paying dividends for all of eternity. And so the major donor needs Lancaster Bible College just as badly as we need their resources. But for some reason, we can't see that. We think that our resources, I, I, there's this gentleman that and he did nothing wrong, but he he was a, a, a high-level employee of that Enron before Enron went belly up. And he had nothing, he's a friend, he had nothing to do with all of the lies, right? But he had tons of stock options in the company. And he had tons of, his whole net worth was in that company. And his financial advisor told him not to do it, but he sold a significant amount of his shares and he gave the money away because he was convicted that he didn't want to build up bigger barns. And so prior to that whole thing going crazy, Enron stock going to nothing, he sold his shares and he made these big investments in the kingdom, right? And that those investments are still paying, those buildings that he used his money, they're still paying off huge dividends, right? All of his Enron stock that he didn't sell is gone. Now that example seems extreme, but it's not. It's our whole lives. How much money will you have the day after you die, 
Nothing. So we have something huge and valuable to bring to our donors. Now, the trick is to ask ourselves the question if what God has put on your donor's heart, is that what we represent? So sometimes as you get close to major donors, they may have a lot of capacity and live near your school. But as you get close to them, you realize that they're really drawn to the homeless and the poor. And you realize that you're doing Christian education and that's not their passion. And so sometimes you need to introduce them to a friend who's really focused on that. Which would be a very hard thing to do in the senior leader position to say, oh man, this person has incredible resource and could fund an entire building, but that's not what they're passionate about. And to to give up on that relationship, but it actually blesses the broader kingdom of God and another organization. Right. And, and, and then it, it trusts, you trust the process. We had this client, large Christian camp, like top 10 Christian camps in the U.S. And they had, he had a major donor he was trying to engage with and he couldn't get this guy had ridiculous capacity. And here's me telling a story, Philip. And the guy has ridiculous capacity. He's trying to get him to come tour the camp. He can never get him out to the camp. And so this Christian executive director, camp leader, he says, well, I guess we're never going to get him to give a big gift. And I said, well, why don't you go see him in his world? And he said, well, what, do what? Like go have lunch with them? And I was like, well, yeah. I was like, but what is he passionate about? What is his favorite thing? And he says, oh, he started this K through 12 Christian school. He's like, I'm like, well, why don't you ask him if you can go tour the school he started? And I mean, classic executive director says this to me. Why would I do that? Right? Well, if you're, and I said to him, because if you care about the donor, then you care about the things he's passionate about. And so go see the school. And he literally said, well, you know, Brad, we pay you money to be our consultant. I don't think this is good advice, but I'll do it because you told me to. Right. And he went and he toured the school and he had lunch with the donor afterwards. And at that lunch, the donor talked a lot about the school. And then in the last 10 minutes or so, he says to this executive director, oh, how are things at such and such camp? How are things doing? And then he was able to share. And then the donor gave a gift that was literally five times larger than any gift he'd ever given before. It was, he typically gave a hundred thousand dollars a year. He gave $500,000 and all he did was enter the world of the person. So like sometimes even when you introduce them to the rescue mission, you know, you still win because you're really about the kingdom, right? Brad, tell us what are three fatal mistakes in your experiences that you've seen as you've been uh, working with people and share the stories as appropriate, but three fatal mistakes to avoid when approaching fundraising. Yeah, there's a very important first one. And the number one rule in fundraising is to always let people know ahead of time if you're going to ask them for money. And so there's nothing worse than a president or an executive director of a nonprofit reaching out to a potential donor and saying, hey, I'd love to have coffee and how have you been? Let's have lunch. And then the president shows up and says, I'm so glad we're having lunch. Now I want to talk to you about making this large gift. And so that feels horrible. And uh, it feels horrible to the donor and it feels horrible. It doesn't feel good when you do it. And I've personally experienced that in my life at, where a friend has reached out and they really just wanted my wife and I to support them. And they, you know, said, let's hang out. And then they kind of get, it's just not fun. It feels bad. The number two mistake people make is 
they fatigue their donors. Uh, in fact, I hear a lot of, honestly, I hear a lot of Bible colleges say this to me, um, our donors are fatigued, right? And when I hear that, I actually want to call the donor, the donor police and arrest the Christian college president who just told me their donors are fatigued because donors get fatigued when we over ask. So that's the second mistake. We over ask like the right formula is you ask once a year, once, not every month, not 24 times a year, not six times a year. You ask once and then you think at least three times. What I see most organizations doing is they ask at the gala, they ask to sponsor a sports team, they ask to, to be the end of the year gift, they ask for that special camp scholarship appeal. They just keep asking and asking and asking, and then donors get fatigued. And, and I would imagine, too, within larger institutions that over ask, sometimes it's done intentional because you may have an athletic department that isn't on the same page with the advancement department and they're out making the asks of the same donor base, which is adding to that fatigue yeah, and of being asked multiple charge, times. Who's in charge of the advancement department and who's in charge of the athletic department? The president. Okay. And here's the deal. The advancement department often does not have the power to say to the athletic department, you're not allowed to ask, Right. But the president is sort of like, well, we really need that money for athletics. And so then they kind of let it go. And then the donor gets over asked and then they're tired. And so it's really bad. What, should, what we should have is a policy that says there is a primary relationship holder. And that is, it could be the athletic director. But then when the athletic director goes in and asks, they got to represent scholarships as well. Like it's one person has the best relationship and they need to represent the whole organization, not just their part of the organization, their part of the school. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that so funny? The third common mistake is that we treat our donors like ATM machines and we don't really get to know them as people. And we just, we look at them and we just think of them as money and not these, we don't take serious the responsibility to help our donors grow in their relationship with Christ. And we, you know, that's the title of my book, treat donors like partners, not donors. Yep. Yep. And I would encourage uh, you and we'll put the link in the description to get Brad's book. It's a very, it's a, it's very well done, very easy read. And even in this conversation, so much of fundraising is, it's basic information. It's basic tactics. It's not complex. And perhaps too often we treat it like it's this complex thing. And and maybe that adds to some of the awkwardness of recognizing, no, you know what? It's making a connection and recognizing too that God is in this, right? Especially for our institutions who are focused on, you know, the, the kingdom of God and recognizing that ultimately these are all of his resources, it kind of eases the pressure and allows you to operate more normally than if the stakes are so high or that you're after that big dollar, you could care less relationally who the person is. It kind of creates a, a bit of a level playing field to have those conversations. It really does. Now, you know, I mentioned Lancaster Bible College and they are a amazing like ABHE school. Are, I mean, Philip, are they one of the larger ABHE schools or? I would say probably top five. Yeah. And so I, I understand that that reference, everybody's happy about that reference, but it, a lot of your ABHE schools 
would say, well, we're not as big as them. So we can't relate. Like stories that things they can do don't make sense for us. So what I want to say is that like there is hope for the little small institution. Several years ago, David Matters, your um, VP of Advancement and partner at ABHE, connected us to Oak Hills, which is a teeny tiny Christian school in Bemidji, Minnesota. And they, I mean, no, where is that? Like you fly to Minnesota, you fly to Minneapolis, and then you drive like the equivalent of like the state of Texas to get there, right? And so David introduced us to them and they needed to raise a couple million dollars so they could have uh, appropriate housing. So they could, they have a school of about a hundred, right? They needed a dorm for their very small school. And so I just want to say like, we got to partner with this incredible, teeny, tiny school. And despite what their board thought, despite what the president thought, they were able to fully fund this $2 million building and blow it out of the water. They had all the donors. And so if, if there's anything that's communicated today on this call, like I hope ABHE schools do not believe the lie that they're just going to run out of money and that, that money is their limiting resource. Like, I just want, I believe that, that you have a unique position with schools all over the country and into Canada and some others around the world. These schools can be fully funded with the alumni database. I haven't found a school yet that I, isn't fundable. I have found lots of schools who are very defeated and discouraged and feel like failures and need a lot of hope and encouragement. But I've yet to meet one that can't do these things that they're afraid to do. And so I just, I did talk about Lancaster, but I wanted to give a shout out to Oak Hills because it's amazing. Another one that we've helped raise a lot of money for their annual fund is the Pacific, it's the one in Honolulu, Pacific Rim. Yeah, I mean, like it's not a capital campaign. We've helped them really ramp up their annual fund and raising a lot more money for, for their annual work. And so I just, I just want you to know, you have like this incredible network of schools that have an incredible opportunity to raise so much money to impact the kingdom of God. And I know you know that, I know it, and I just hope the people that are listening can believe me. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And and I believe uh, that 100%, you know, I reflect back to the parable of the talents. One got one, one got three, one got five. For whatever reason, that was a distribution and it wasn't questioned, right? It was, what do you do with the investment that God has given? And I appreciate the work that you've done very much encouraging to our institutions to step into the space that God has called them to do. They have a unique mission that they are fulfilling and God will provide along the way. So I appreciate that encouragement. We're coming to the end of this podcast. This has been a a fantastic conversation. So in the last minute, what's one actionable step that leaders listening to this episode can take to set a positive trajectory for their fundraising efforts? Just one step, huh? One step. Just one step. One step that they can, after they hit end on the podcast, they can go and do. One step is this. Think of your largest donor, the donor that has historically given the most amount of money to you as an organization. And I want the president that's listening or the vice president of advancements that's listening, think of that donor and then ask yourself, what do they love? And it can't be us. It can't be, oh, well, they love our college. No, that's true. But what else means a lot to them? And then call them up 
and ask them if you can go spend time with them in that context. Kind of like that story I told about the executive director of that large Christian camp. But whether it's, do they like the fly fish? Do they like the run? Do they like, I had this one president who he went and went to a marathon. We talked, I like to run like, and he went and watched one of his major donors cross the finish line at the New York city marathon. Right? So my challenge is enter the world of your major donors. Don't invite, I'm sorry, you can't invite my, here's my challenge. You cannot invite them to your campus. This is you entering their world and without any strings attached, just spend time with them. Like I could tell lots of stories Philip, I'm going to tell one. I, I can't help myself. I had a different client. One of their major donors loved to race cars. He was so wealthy. Him and his friends used to send their cars to different racetracks around the country. They were sending their cars to the Daytona 500 Speedway, and then they would rent the track and race each other. So I said to this president, I said, why don't you go down and watch him race? And he said, again, like, why? And I'm like, well, because he he's spending a lot of money. He clearly likes to do it. And so this his president went, he actually made me go too. Cause he's like, I don't know, I'm scared. And so we went and watched this donor race his cars. And at the end, the donor was like, my wife's never even come. This is so great. Thanks for coming. And honestly, it was fun. And that partnership, just that depth of relationship got established because we entered their world. We're constantly asking those same donors to enter our world. Well, so here's my challenge, go enter their world. And be about the things they love and just watch God use that to deepen your relationship with them. So there you go. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the work that you do at Focus Group uh, on behalf of ABHE schools, uh, but even beyond that. Uh, and uh, uh, if, if you are listening to this and you want more information about the Focus Group, uh, go ahead and click on the link uh, that's in the description for this podcast. So uh, until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your Biblical Higher Educational Organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.